you have an insert in your bulletin that um, will give you the passages we'll be looking at today, the eighth of the Ten Commandments. Many courthouses and even state capitals in the country have the Ten Commandments posted or engraved into their walls, the marble walls, and this has been a problem in recent decades. Some have been court-ordered to be removed. I think even from an historical point of view, it doesn't make any sense to try to eradicate the history of where we came from. You may know that our Constitution, the Constitution of the United States, has 27 amendments. The first 10 are called the Bill of Rights. They were passed right at the beginning. Number four is one that makes the news. Number one makes the news a lot. That's a freedom to speak, freedom of speech and press. And Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Number two has to do with the right to bear arms, keep and bear arms. And number three, one that almost nobody knows, no soldier shall be um, quartered in your home. I don't know if you've ever had a soldier quartered in your home other than one of your own family members, but that's number three. Number four is the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, effects against unreasonable search and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person's or things being seized. And in several places the mention is made not only of the taking of life uh, as being prohibited without due process. The Fifth and the Sixth Amendment are also related to due process. The Fifth is most famously known as uh, the right to be silent or plead the Fifth, it's referred to. You don't need to say anything. Many kids discover this at, when they're at home already that um, sometimes it's just better to stay silent and say nothing because anything you say can and will be used against you uh, at some future date by your parents usually not very far in the future and number six of course is the amendment that says you have uh, the right to put on a defense to defend yourself against any accusation this is what you could say the gossip and slander amendment uh, because it should be practiced in daily life in general that when people say things about you you should have the right to put them on trial to prove that what they're saying is true that cut out an awful lot of gossip don't you think and slander that if somebody says something about you you have a right to hire an attorney you have a right to call them as witnesses and um, put them on trial for saying it and if they can prove it you're guilty but in other words the burden of proof is on the accuser not the accused that's amendment number six but the fourth amendment is based on the principle of private property private space and personal space it's one of the features of American society and history that is part of its uniqueness and has been for over 200 years one of the reasons why many people risk their lives to get here because many countries and many countries in history have not had the understanding of personal space and private property and the commandment of the list is thou shalt not steal just simple as that and like all of the commandments they're brief statements that 
appeal to and draw attention to uh, fundamental principles of ethical living, life in community. Uh, we've dealt with this in all of the previous seven, how each one is not a developed statute law, but the principle upon which the statute laws and the case laws would be built in Israel, and we are descendants of the Judeo-Christian understanding of the rule of law, that we are prohibited from doing certain things, but free to do anything else that does not come into contact with these laws. And that is the fundamental difference between a totalitarian state, whether it's called socialist, communist, or fascist, the social, the, where the government essentially owns everything, and you are permitted to use it. We say in communism, particularly, you'd say, well, the people own everything collectively. There is no such thing as private property. In reality, that simply means that the politicians or the government owns everything and you are their personal slaves. That's the way it has worked out in history and that's the way it will continue to work out in history because the concept of boundaries does not exist in that understanding of life in community. Cults in the world of religion also operate on that principle. You don't own anything. You don't own your own soul. You don't own anything. It belongs to the organization, the religious organization. And the pastor or the elders or the guru, they own it all. And you have to do what they say. One of the ironic downsides or, say, human nature elements that was revealed from the free love revolution or the sexual revolution or the 60s, if you will, was that some of the most bizarre control cults grew out of that. The Jesus People Movement, we sang a song that originated in the Jesus People Movement today, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I know because we were part of the Jesus People Movement at, at the time that these songs taken all directly from scripture were invented or written or just developed and eventually copyrighted, of course, by some organizations. But that's another situation. But the fact is, many cults grew out of that because the average age of the members of the Jesus People Movement re revival, the communes, which is what it was centered on, communal living, the average age was something like 20 or 21. And older and savvier people were able to take advantage of that and take from those young people their souls, their property, everything. Some of the most extreme cults even in the world today uh, grew out of the Jesus People Movement because the notion, if we just love one another, we don't need laws. The concept of justice does not need to be talked about. Punishment is bad. Love is good. Everything is love. And ironically, in a world filled with sin and darkness, Love is a powerful light and a powerful force. But if your definition of love just means feeling good or being nice, you're not going to live long because love implies boundaries and order and justice. So we're not going to look at the passage 
in Exodus chapter 20 because I just told you what it is. It's another one of those two or to most three word sentences in Hebrew, thou shalt not steal. Steal, of course, means to not take what does not belong to you. And it is specifically in regard to this commandment that other laws about personal property and boundaries and space are developed in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and so on. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to page 696, Matthew 19, verse 16 through 30. We're going to look at a story there that picks up on this subject from the life of Jesus and his teaching and his application of these principles from the Old Testament. Now you recall that it was Jesus himself back in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, who says, I, where he said, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, and not one jot or tittle, meaning not even a little bit of the law is going to be thrown out, but it's going to be fulfilled in its larger implications, its meanings. So it's not a matter of moving away from God's standards as exposited in the Old Testament, but a matter of applying them more deeply and meaningfully with God's original intent. In Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 16, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, Obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. So what do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, will have followed, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is Jesus teaching the disciples by interacting with a young man who came to him who was a princeling, a wealthy young man whose heart appeared to be in the right place until he was challenged on the one thing that would make true discipleship of Jesus impossible. And that 
he didn't just have a lot of money. He wasn't just born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And Jesus said nothing about everybody must sell everything they have and give it to the poor. Jesus said to him specifically, sell what you have and give to the poor. And this went right to the heart of where his true loyalties, his true God was because he loved that money. He loved that wealth. And he was a good young man. He was a nice young man. Everything about him was appealing. And the other version of this in Luke says that Jesus was grieved over the loss because he knew that this was one of the good guys, except for one thing. You can't follow Jesus if there's something you want to negotiate over. It's a problem with all kinds of things. Things in your lifestyle, for example. Well, I would like to follow Jesus, but the church got these standards that are so negative. And if you would just take this commandment, this commandment, and this commandment. In other words, reduce the Ten Commandments to only seven. I think I could buy into your program. We're not negotiating. It's not about seven out of ten. It's not about five out of ten. It's about your heart and what matters the most to you. None of the things addressed in the Ten Commandments had anything to do with the inherent evil of anything. What it had to do with what's important to you. And the use you make of the things that God created and the world he put you in. Sin is sometimes pretty easily defined. Not as the needs we have in life but the means that we use to meet those needs. And if you are inclined to take what belongs to somebody else because it is a need, or at least a craving, then you've got a problem. It's not just a material problem, and it's pretty easy to cook up resentment about material things. Interesting that I think in my lifetime I have never seen the discussion on the national level because of political candidates running for president uh, of this discussion, this idea, which I find very interesting because I like to discuss these ideas. On the one hand, that'll be my left, you have socialism. Socialism simply means that the government owns all of the production elements of life. In other words, there will be no more big corporations. There will be no more private medicine. There will be no more anything because the government owns it. And I think you should remember that if you think big corporations are a problem today, wait till big corporations and big government are one and the same thing. That will be a problem. And then you have on the other side, on my right, a guy who is now known... Now, not just by the name of Trump, but uh, Trump trauma, uh, is kind of a national, has actually created a kind of a national psychiatric disorder, Trumpophobia or Trump trauma. Uh, there are so many people freaking out that the counseling business is booming. Jobs being created everywhere in the psychiatric care world. And that's good. Jobs are good, right? But he's on the other side, the ultimate capitalist, in which government has, should have no role in only money, and those who have it should have all of the role. I suspect that if you look at history to the, through the lens of those two things, you'll find that both of them 
are opposite extremes and have had very destructive results. And the balance between the two tends to be where justice thrives best. Certainly the Old Testament, thou shalt not steal, is a command to respect private property. But when private property becomes the end-all and be-all, money, capitalism, you've got a problem. Because then the rich simply get richer and the poor get poorer. Because there are no other controls. There are no ethical standards that bring it under control. If you read the Old Testament, you'll discover there were many controls on private property. Every 49 years, for example, the year of Jubilee, all the land had to go back to the original family owners. A redistribution technique. And it was a good one. But also, thou shalt not steal reminded them that taking from other people is a problem, that which is not yours. Should uh, make a couple of comments on the term stealing. It has a negative connotation, and it should have. But I have, when I was, uh, my grandson, our grandson, Coyote, was about three years old. I was teaching him some basketball tricks, playing basketball. And one of the things I taught him to do was how to steal the ball. Steal the ball away from the other guys. Now, if you know anything about basketball, you know that stealing is a virtue in basketball, and it is in some other games. So at dinner that night, I was telling them about our game and the things that we learned, and I said, well, Coyote learned how to steal in the game today. And he immediately went to pieces. I'm not a stealer. Oh, but don't call me a stealer. He had no concept that stealing the basketball was any different. Well, that's good. I'm glad that his parents were teaching him the respect for private property because that's a good thing. Honor the space and the boundaries that people possess. And I think that it's valid to say that there's a difference between property rights and people rights that enters into the justice area. I don't know that it's all that clear sometimes. If you try to take, for example... The backpack from a homeless guy, you're stealing something that in proportion to what he has, it's everything. That would be like burning down your house or stealing your car. Although I know of one car right now that uh, Steve is hoping will get stolen, but uh, I've had those kind too, <laughs> that uh, nobody ever does for some reason. They only steal the good ones. Theft is instinctively something we know. If you take what belongs to somebody else, kids in school take pens, erasers, papers, reports that are already done, and turn them in, you kind of know that there's something wrong with that because it isn't just about physical space. There are boundaries that have to do with your sense of who you are and your sense of privacy, and your sense of safety. Jesus, uh, with this rich young ruler, did not run after him and say, oh, you don't, okay, okay, I didn't know this, this was very important to you. Okay, 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 you can be my disciple if you 
you, you can keep that thing in your life. You can keep that behavior. You can keep that money. You, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's all about grace. And you know the gospel. is Everybody's a fool. I mean, everybody comes and everybody can be whatever they want. There is no grace without law. There is no love, no mercy. When we're singing about grace today, I was thinking about that. Sometimes we need to be reminded of what grace is. Grace only lives in the context where it's needed, where there are standards, where there is forgiveness needed, where there is provision needed. Grace doesn't actually live in a context in which everything is free. That's why free love does not exist. The love of God costs Jesus everything. Your love for God will cost you everything in the long run, including your property. Occasionally, we um, think and talk about offerings in church, and there are some churches that don't do offerings in the service itself. You know, other ways to give uh, online or put it in a box in a bag. But I think there's something about making a statement to God in the worship service that says, everything I own belongs to you, God. And what I'm doing here for this hour on a Sunday morning is not just getting you out of my way. It represents all of my life, my soul, my spirit, and my possessions. So giving in the church service is an act of worship. That's how it was instituted in the Old Testament, and it stayed that way in the New Testament. One other passage I want to turn your attention to, Romans. And this is page 804, if you're using the uh, Pew Bible. Romans chapter 13, and we're going to start right at the beginning of that chapter. And just cover ten verses there. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in Rome. Chapter 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, but only because of not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. April 15 cometh. April 18 this year. Uh, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm, does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Once again, first Jesus, now the Apostle Paul, reminding them that the law was not canceled. It was simply improved upon. 
If you love your neighbor, get to know them, love them, treat them well. I mean, your physical neighbor, your friends in school and on the job, people you work with. If you love them, you will treat them well. And you will rise above the law, not below the law. When somebody says, well, we're Christians, we're saved by grace and not by law. They don't understand this, what Jesus said about it. You rise above it because you think about what's good for them, what's kind. All of the fruit of the Spirit aspects fall into this picture. But here Paul uses the same and he simply says, don't owe anybody anything. Don't do any of these things. Just treat them well. You owe them this in the name of God. Now I want to draw your attention to three verses that we'll just briefly touch on and then talk about the application points. Ephesians 4, verse 27, 28. This is on the back of your insert and uh, also up on the uh, projector. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Here again, in a different context, the Apostle Paul is challenging them. Look, if you're a kleptomaniac or if you're inclined to cheat on your taxes or you're inclined to, you know, steal from your employer by being a lazy bum, drawing your paycheck anyway, if that's what you're inclined to do, you're not following Jesus. I don't care what you say in church on Sunday morning. On Monday, when you go back to work, or when you engage in life out there, how do you treat the people out there? Here he's suggesting that um, you're, you should be a giver, not a taker. That you should be one of those people that contributes. This, is, this has nothing to do with one's source of income. It has to do with whether you're a giver versus a taker. Authentic followers of Jesus want to be contributors in life. If your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers don't see you as one of these people that holds up their place in the line, you got a problem. You're not following Jesus. You're making other people pick up your tab. That's theft. And Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Once again, he talks about go above and beyond the responsibility. Yeah, you can get away with it. But the point is, what does God think of you trying to get away with it? When Margie and I were new believers and newly married I worked we worked cleaning restaurants in the middle of the night we cleaned one of these really fancy ones and they had in the in the cooler some of the best New York cut steaks you've ever seen so my habit was uh, about 3 a.m. when I'm cleaning the restaurant to turn on the grill and fry up one of these New York cut steaks and then take my break sitting at the table and eating one of their steaks. I thought I was kind of like, these are rich people. Even the people that eat in this place, uh, their whole meal is probably more than what 
I'm bringing home in a month. And so I thought that made sense. But also as a new believer, I carried around one of those little Bibles, pocket Bibles. And so I would open it up, flip it open, and just start reading something while I'm sitting there eating that pilfered steak. And I came across this passage one day. Obey your earthly masters with respect, not just with eye service. Do it for God. Well, they couldn't see me eating their steak. They probably wondered why their inventory got the way it was. But God spoke right at me. This isn't mine. I don't care whether you think they own... I don't care whether you think the one percenters in America, which, by the way, is one of the stupidest inaccurate terms you've ever heard... I don't care if you think that they have too much money. You cheat on your taxes. You steal from them. God is going to take care of you. Because the problem is, if the little people act that way, why shouldn't the big people and the rich people? You've got no grounds to complain if you're doing the same thing. You know that one of the big differences between rich people and poor people is in the justice category. But one of the other differences is in the stupidity category. I know a lot of poor people who would love to be rich. They're just too stupid to get there. The difference between rich people and poor people sometimes is just how stupid you are. The values are exactly the same. I know a lot of poor people who I wouldn't trust any farther than I could throw my car. And I know a lot of rich people that I wouldn't trust any farther than I could throw my car. He's suggesting that our role in society is to have a conscience, whether we're one of the little people or the big people. Society's health depends on what we can contribute, not in terms of dollars or even votes, but in terms of moral standards that we bring to the workplace and the neighborhood and the schools, whatever we do. And then one more, Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. This is Solomon, who was, by the way, one of the one percenters. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of God. You know, Tevye's prayer in um, Fiddler on the Roof. I don't want to be a rich man, rich man. But please, Lord, just a teeny little fortune. Well, here's a prayer. Lord, I don't want too much. I might get proud and I might become one of those evil one percenters. I'd like to have a crack at that. And I don't want to be so poor that I'm constantly tempted to have to steal or cheat or lie and deceive in order to sustain. That's a good prayer, a good approach to the material. Let's talk about some takeaways, some challenges for application in daily life. Number one, God created the material world and assigned us to live in it. Neither reject it nor worship it. Somebody told me one time after being cheated in a real estate deal by a pastor, not sure I got the details exactly right, but this is kind of how it went. Guy cheated him and the person said, I thought you were a pastor. He said, this is business, that's church. They're not the same thing. Right. You think God thinks that way? I don't think so. And you think the non-Christians that we're trying to show God's love to and character to think that way? 
oh, well, that's church, so you got to be good there. And on Monday, when you get out here, you can lie, cheat, and steal, and be as crooked as every, anybody out there. And that's okay, because it's not church. Oh, come on, don't be a fool. That's not how anybody's looking at it, especially not God. Number two, respecting boundaries is simply taking up God's value system. Every one of these laws, the Ten Commandments laws, have to do with boundaries. God's boundaries, our boundaries for each other. God created us as individuals with boundaries. God's going to respect our boundaries. Do you respect other people's boundaries? Even if you can conjure up a rationalization for believing that, well, they owe it to me, so I can just go get it. Number three, hold on to possessions lightly. You can't take them with you, but give them up wisely. This is good stewardship. There are some people that really do want to sell everything they have and give to the poor. We've known some people like that. Unfortunately, when they do that, sometimes they're just making their own families poverty-stricken in the process. That's not wisdom. That's just stupid. And it's self-aggrandizing. Look at me! I gave away this, that, and all this other stuff. I'm head of the Pharisee club. I mean, I'm more righteous than you are. But you're a fool because you're actually robbing from other people in order to do this and reap glory to yourself. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's no glory in poverty. There's no eternal reward in wealth either. But there's no glory in poverty. But there is wisdom and stewardship about using the resources God gives us. Number four, tithe your income. This is a tangible way to let God into your wallet and all your possessions. Well, there's an old saying that the last part of a person to get saved is his wallet. That's not just because he's sitting on it. It's because money is hard to see. Money and material possession. Well, I don't mind going to church on Sunday morning and do that spiritual thing, you know, sing some songs and pray and whatnot and let the preacher talk at me for a while. And when I, I'm happy to do that, but outside of this building, this is mine. Yeah. Good luck on the judgment day, if that's your attitude. The tithe principle starts clear back in Genesis chapter 14. I gave you an article here about the tithe principle. I just want to give a couple of sentences about that. You can read that on your own. But the tithe is instituted in the Old Testament and addressed in principle in the New Testament for a reason. It's one of those ways that we can, well, support the church and other ministries is obvious, but it's one of those ways that we can put our personal lives in order. If you get $10 and you take the first dollar from that and give it away with Jesus' name on it somehow, here's a money-back guarantee. All of the rest of it will make so much more sense and be easier to control. Because you start out saying, this is God's and I'm here to take care of it. It'll go farther. You'll think better of it. You'll make more sense of your personal finances. Tithing is no panacea, given a tenth away or any percentage away for that matter. 
But it is a very effective tool in our lives to bring order to the material part of our lives. Just like the Sabbath when we dealt with that. That one day in seven was for the purpose of us. God doesn't need that time off. And God doesn't really even need your dollar or whatever it is. It's for us. It makes order of it. it brings, it's an invitation to God to be part of the material part of our lives. Number five, sacrifices for the sake of honesty, work ethic, restitution, and life callings will be blessed by God. He said so. This is what Jesus told the disciples after he gave them that story about it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? The problem is if you're gifted and blessed in a certain area, you're going to have a hard time giving that up as not being the most important thing of life. I'm sure you're aware of this, that rich people have a tendency to think that being rich is, makes them better than other people. People that look good or are very gifted in arts, music, intellectually, have a hard time. You build your whole life about that gift. That's who you are. That's your significance. I have a hard time giving that up. And the disciples, well, who can be saved then? That's the point, Jesus said. Nobody. On your own merit. This is what is called born again. You die to these things, your personal glory. And give yourself up to Jesus. He will put it back in order. Put the puzzle back together. If you're willing to die to your claim to fame. And make it work for you. Then they'll fall into place. And you'll balance, order, meaning, purpose. And there will be ultimate rewards. Anything done for a greater good in this world? Jesus said, you're going to have a hundred times as much in the future. You might even get that now. But for sure, you're going to have a hundred times as much in the future. Uh, retirement benefits are out of this world, he might have said. Stand and join me in prayer. Father, as we're talking about these things, maybe each of us has an issue of a different kind. Maybe it's resentment or envy against those who have when we don't. Maybe it's love of money. Maybe it's placing too much value on the material or maybe some other aspect or skill in our lives. You know what it is? And I think we each know what it is in our minds and hearts as well. Our history generally proves it. So we give those things up to you. Invite you to come in to our lives and our hearts and we offer ourselves to you. Lock, stock, and barrel, not holding back any of the things like the rich young ruler came to Jesus. We don't want to hold back. We want you to be Lord of our life. And we know that when that happens, then things will make a lot more sense and we'll be a lot more successful and balanced. Work in us because you said you would. We take you up on it. We offer ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.